This morning's scripture will come from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It's Acts 1, 7 through 11. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will, all, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The great God of the universe, who is the giver of every perfect gift, has spoken to every generation, and he has told his people, the best is yet to come. Imagine that. That's not just a New Testament theme. Back in the Old Testament, starting in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, he gave Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, a threefold promise. That promise incorporated the giving of a land, making them a great people, and then he said, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a spiritual promise. Implied is that through your descendancy will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He was telling them that, in essence, things are not always going to stay the way they are right now because the best is yet to come. And in Joshua chapter 1, beginning with verse 2, after the death of Moses, God would commission Joshua, and the first thing that he told Joshua was, the best is yet to come. They understood that, I think, at least implicitly. They understood that when they were wandering in the wilderness, that that wasn't what they were looking for. That was not the end of their trek, the end of life's journey. They understood the land of a promise, the land of Canaan, that blessed land that flowed with milk and honey was what they were looking forward to, and they could not wait till they could be there. And so the Lord had to remind them through both Moses and Joshua over and over again that you understand that it's not going to stay the way it is right now. The best is yet to come. And yet Canaan seemed so far away. God would make that land flowing with milk and honey a reality to his people. It was theirs for the taking, and they had to be reminded of that. If they would only trust him, if they would move ahead in faith, there would be a place in that land of rest, a land of plenty. And the best for the people of God was yet to come. That's an Old Testament and a New Testament message for God's people. And then God gave the people of Israel a glimpse into that land of Canaan that they, that they were going to possess. He described the other side of the Jordan River, what they would see when they crossed to the other side. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 10, if you want to read that sometime. And then in verses 15 through the 16 of the same chapter, he would talk about how that he would sustain them in that wilderness. He said, you're going to wander for 40 years. But I guarantee you that I have not left you to your own devices and to your own strength. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I believe in a very similar way God will see us through to the other side of our Jordan River as well. He did not leave them. He did not forsake them in the Old Testament. And he will not forsake us either. You see, in the New Testament, God reminds us, his church, his people, his children, that the best is yet to come. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 
during his own difficult times when Paul probably had some difficulty seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel, he nevertheless wrote, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul is acknowledging that in his own difficult times, it's not going to stay this way. The best is yet to come. It's just going to get better and better. And if we think that our reward will be on this side of the grave, if we're looking for a reward for living the Christian life in the here and now, in all likelihood, we're going to be overwhelmed by the difficulties of life and think that God has deserted us. But if we realize that our reward is on the other side of the grave, that will help us to be persevering in living the life that God would have us to live on a daily basis. If we know that we, what we do for him in this world, in this life, counts for eternity, and that living for him is the only enterprise that matters in the ultimate, then though the results may be unseen, they may be out there somewhere in the future, we'll continue to steadfastly carry on for him, regardless of what the circumstances might be in our lives at the present moment. That is a spiritual reality and an immutable promise of God throughout Scripture. In that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is about to end that chapter, in verse 58, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then there's that promise, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know that what you're doing and even what you're suffering for Christ right now is not what you're going to have to experience forever. I want you to know the best is yet to come. And so having a clear view of the other side is going to enable us to persevere on this side. I'd like to remind everybody here today that the best is yet to come. Now, you may not get that message when you turn on your TV or when you fire up your computer and you, and, and you watch the news. You see what's going on in the world. You see what's going on in our nation. And you may even see what's going on right here in our city. And you may, you may wonder, now, where's the good news? But the good news is that even though times may be bad now, it's going to get better. The best is yet to come. God always saves the best for last. Let me say that again, people. God always saves the best for last. Notice the contrast. Satan always gives his best up front. He always saves the worst for last. But God has said, I want you to know that if you live your life for me, if you can commit yourself and dedicate yourself to living faithfully in my service, it is only going to get better and better. And isn't that good news? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, we find Jesus speaking to his discouraged disciples if you got your Bible, be turning there, if you will. I want to read just a few verses. John 14, and the first three verses in particular, he's talking to his discouraged disciples. They're wondering, as he has predicted, that he's not going to stay with them, what they will do once he leaves. How will we carry on? How will we be able to find our incentive for living the way he would have us to live on a daily basis? And so he gives them this one last message, and he wanted to remind them that the best is yet to come. Here's what he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, watch this carefully, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know that had to have meant so much to those beleaguered disciples. Those that were experiencing persecution and hardship because of their faith for Jesus to tell them, listen, you need to understand there's a better world than this one. 
And you may not know circumstances that are a whole lot different for the rest of your natural span on, on this earth, but when you get out of this place, the retirement plan is out of this world. We need to hear that, I think, from time to time. Note verse 3 in particular, if I go and prepare a place for you, and the if doesn't indicate conditional, he says this is what's going to happen. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself. I want you to think, first of all, about the certainty of it. There is certitude in the Lord's declaration. God has prepared a place for his people. He is the general contractor, and I'm here to announce to you this morning. That if you're a child of God, if you're a member of his spiritual kingdom, then there's a mailbox in heaven right now with your name on it. And if we understand that, it'll make a difference in the way we live from day to day. David, encouraging us from the ages past, said in that well-known Psalm 23, in verse 6, as he's winding up the psalm, he said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will, there's the certainty of it, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So heaven, we need to understand, is a present place, as the record shows. Stephen was being stoned to death, and the reason he was being stoned to death is basically because of the sermon that he had just preached. He had been called on the carpet by those who opposed the way of Christ, and now Stephen is going to be the one, he's going to be the recipient of the uh, the consequences of his presentation of that message. And he, if you've read his sermon that's synopsized there in, in that chapter, you know that he didn't pull any punches. I've often said that there's a lot of preachers who preach sermons that a congregation didn't really want to hear, but that's the only place that I know of in Scripture where when the sermon ended, they killed the preacher. And that's exactly what happened with Stephen. But he was willing to pay that price. He understood the, what that commitment represented. And there in Acts chapter 7 and verse 56, he saw a vision as he was dying as his, his life and blood were seeping from his body. And, and here's what he said about that. Again, verse 56 of Acts 7. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Don't you know that that had to have meant not just the world, but that had to have meant the universe to Stephen, to be able to see Christ in his present form standing next to the right hand of God. Heaven is a place that is real. We need to understand the certainty of it. It's a perfect place. Revelation 21.4 is a passage that I love to read, and I don't mean just in funeral services. I like to read this passage from time to time in my own private study because it tells us about the certainty of heaven and how wonderful that place will be. Here's what John says. And by the way, this is only a partial description. Most of the last two and a half chapters of the book of Revelation fittingly are describing what heaven is going to be like. But in verse 4, here's what he says, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the former things, that is the things that characterize this world, they've all passed away. Please note that. In that place there's going to be no sorrow, there's going to be no suffering, and there's going to be no sin. That alone makes me want to go. And then John said in 1 John 3 verse 2, it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Heaven will be in the presence of all that's good and will be in the absence of all that is evil. And that ought to make us want to go. Heaven will be all that the loving heart of God can conceive and all that the omnipotent hand of God can supply. I want you to see the certainty of it. 
And the second place, I want you to think about the company in it. Because the Bible says, and Jesus said it there in John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now I realize that that can be translated in a variety of ways. Some translations actually say compartments or even apartments. But there is a place. I like the King James concept of a mansion. I don't know if it's really going to be a mansion the way we would think of it. But nonetheless, there is a place for, for everyone who has lived the way God would have us to live. Not just one. All the saints of all the ages will be there. All of our brothers and sisters in Christ will be there. That is the company in heaven. And how wonderful that place will be. Mark Twain is reported to have said a number of things. Some of them were amazingly wise. Some of them otherwise. And this is one of his otherwise observations. Mark Twain said, I will take heaven for the climate and hell for the company. As if those in hell are going to be partying all the time and so that he would enjoy that association. Folks, there's not going to be any joy. There's going to be no social fellowship in hell. There will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the Bible says. I want heaven for the climate and for the company. I want it primarily because that's where God's people are going to be. That's where the faithful of all ages will reside. Our loved ones who've died in the Lord, they're going to be there. David's son died. 2 Samuel chapter 12 talks about that. And how that David grieved for his son. And how that he prayed and how that he fasted that his son's life might be extended. But that was not to be so. And when his son died, David said... I cannot bring my child back to me, but I can go to where he is. You see, that was, that was a particle of hope in David's, in David's heart. And that's there for everyone who's lived righteously. That we will someday be able to be with those that have loved the Lord and served him faithfully. You know, what the Lord is telling us is that little baby of yours that died is going to be there, safe in the arms of Jesus. Your Christian husband, your godly wife, your faithful parents will be there. And what a wonderful homecoming that will be. Think about the wonderful Bible characters that will occupy that heavenly place. Moses will be there. Won't it be wonderful to sit down with Moses and spend, you know, 10,000 years or so talking about And listening to him tell stories about the wilderness wanderings, I want to hear every detail. David will be there. Maybe he'll sing the 23rd Psalm to us. I would like to hear David sing it. By the way, I heard an older gospel preacher one time preaching about heaven. And he said, I don't know what kind of singing we'll have in heaven, but I know we'll have some because the Bible tells us so. But he says, uh, I can envision 100,000 people singing soprano and me singing bass. You know, I don't know, I don't know what you've got in mind, but won't it be wonderful there? Maybe David will sing the 23rd Psalm. Maybe David will come up to me and say, Randy, you never did squeeze all the juice out of Psalm 23 when you preached on it, and I'll have to agree. Paul will be there. Wouldn't it be wonderful to attend Paul's in-depth commentary on what the book of Romans really meant and how great our redemption in the Lord really is and to be able to really squeeze all the juice out of that wonderful book? Simon Peter will be there and he'll be standing inside the gate and he'll be saying to us, Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? How wonderful that place will be. Heaven will surely be worth it all. And the Bible tells us on virtually every page, at least in principle, that it's a place of glory and unspeakable joy. 
But folks, I tell you what, to me, the one thing that will make heaven heaven is the fact that Jesus will be there. Jesus is the one who's coming back for us. And as we're looking through and reading through scripture and we're looking at all the particulars of of that biblical doctrine about the return of our Lord, we must never miss that immutable fact. Jesus is the one in John 14 who promised to come back for us. And when I come, I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I will come, he says, I will come back and receive you. Paul, in one of his letters, spoke about being absent from the body and yet present with the Lord. That was a degree of comfort in Paul's own heart and life. And we sing sometimes that old song, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Paul, the apostle, wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of Christ. And those who are dead in Christ will will rise first. It's interesting to notice as you walk through and study through that great book of 1 Thessalonians that the end of every one of those chapters is a promise, a reference to the second coming of Christ. It permeates that whole book. Why was that? I think it's because Paul and everyone else who wrote the New Testament by inspiration wanted to forevermore keep in the front of the minds of every child of God the fact that the Lord has promised to come back, that he is coming back, to understand the certainty of it, to understand the company that's going to be there, and to understand that it is a promise that's been given to all of his people. God wants the church to understand and to live in light of the second coming of Christ. And Peter even said that in 2 Peter chapter 3, if we know that the Lord is coming back, if we know that all that we see around us is going to someday melt with fervent heat and that what we know that is material in nature is not going to last, what difference will it make in the way that we live? It will make a universe of difference, Peter concludes. And then John the Beloved in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 wanted to remind us again that the best is yet to come. And here's what he wrote. And now, little children, can't you see that? Can you envision old John, the only apostle to die of old age, writing this letter, this final letter, or one of the last three letters to his people, his fellow Christians, and he called them my little children. That was one of his favorite statements. Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. He says, I want that homecoming to be nothing but confidence and joy and victory. Nobody ought to be ashamed when the Lord comes back. His people ought to be glorying and reveling in that reality. Allow me to remind you, it's the person who gives meaning to the event. The angel spoke in Acts 1 in verse 11, a part of our text, And he said, the same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Now, I don't know all the mechanics of it. I don't know exactly how the Lord will return, but I do know that in a similar way in which he ascended into heaven is going to be the way that he will descend back to earth. We're looking for a person when we speak of the second coming. Are you hearing me, church? We're looking for a person when we talk about the second coming of our Lord. We're not simply carried away with a doctrine. We are captivated with a person. What I'm trying to communicate is when the Lord comes back, 
with his big ring of keys and says, gentlemen, it's closing time, my first reaction will not be to say, think of the eschatological ramifications of that. My first reaction will be to say, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. We're looking for a person when he comes back. Several years ago, as prisoners of war were coming back from the war in Vietnam, you might recall having seen, because it made national news, a man by the name of Jeremiah Denton return and step off the airplane and be reunited with his loving family. Waiting there was his wife and his children. What do you think that his family did when he stepped off that jet? They ran over and kissed the nose of the plane. No, they didn't. They weren't the least bit interested about the plane that he came back on. They were overcome by the one who had arrived on that plane. A little girl leaped and wrapped herself around the neck of her father. A grateful wife collapsed into the arms of her loving husband. It was the person who gave meaning to the event. I want us to think about the company that's going to be there when things only get better. And then finally, I want you to see the constancy of it. What I'm speaking about is not a homecoming that will last an afternoon and then we'll make our way back to our homes and we'll come back if we're still alive to celebrate again maybe 25 years later. I'm speaking about an eternal homecoming where we will never again be separated from the ones we love. David said at the end of that great psalm, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a homecoming that will last eternity. God never intended for us to settle down here. Heaven is our home, not this world. And when you see the great characters of Old and New Testament, you see that they understood that principle. Abraham didn't settle in. He understood that he was just a sojourner. He was going from time to eternity. He understood that. We need to understand that. He's a sojourn in the land of promise by faith. There is a land that's fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. Will you sing it with me? There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place place there in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore the Bible tells us over and over that heaven is a place of constancy, of constant rest, of constant reward, of constant joy, constant praise. Heaven is forever. Remember David's words, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Before we end this study, I have to say this, because I, I want to be a faithful gospel preacher, to let you know that Jesus is the door to that real place called heaven. In fact, he said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He also said in John 10, in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone comes through me, 
He shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. So I'm asking you this morning, why wait another day? If you wait until tomorrow, you'll, you'll lose today. Proverbs 27 verse 1 reminds us, do not boast yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And I'm telling you this morning that if you wait to obey the Lord and become a child of God until tomorrow, your heart may be hardened and you may be calloused by sin and you may be too calloused to ever want to come to him in faith and obedience. Don't wait until tomorrow. The Bible says you might, you might die. That is a reality. Death knows no convenient season. But none of us here this morning really believes that we'll die before this day is done, and yet someone dies every second. Don't wait for tomorrow. Jesus may return. He said, I am coming back. And he also said, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who disbelieves will be condemned. Mark 16, verse 16. Watch this now. There is never a wrong time to do a right thing. The most important thing this morning is the eternal destiny of your soul. And if you're not a Christian, then today as we offer this invitation, and as we sing this invitation song in just a moment, I pray that you'll leave your seat, you'll come to the front, you'll sit on this front pew, I'll talk to you, I'll baptize you into Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins. But I'm asking you, don't wait, don't be deceived, this is your moment while we stand and while we sing. With a humble heart I come, bowing down before your holy throne, lifting holy hands to you as I pledge my love anew. I worship you in spirit, I worship you in truth, make my life a holy praise unto you. On bended knee I come, with a broken heart I come. Bowing down before your holy throne. As I look upon your face, show your mercy and your grace. Change my life, O Holy Spirit. Make me fresh and ever new. Make my life a holy sacrifice to you. Be seated, please. Gabe Brenneman has responded to your encouragement this morning, and he has... A few things on his heart that he asks for our prayers for. First of all, he realizes 